Let's pray. I say those words today with more heart emphasis as we look at the text this morning, O Lord, this from your book, a call to prayer in the time of trouble. Father, it's so easy for us to run to every and any kind of other refuge rather than to you. It is just by nature that we do that, and it's not right, and it's not good, and it's not helpful. And I pray, Father, that you would remind us of the privilege of being able to run to you in the day of trouble. Teach us, Father. Teach our children while they're young. Teach our teenagers while they're facing many difficulties in school, especially those who are attending public school or uh, a, a local college. And there are many. Father, I pray that you would help them to pray. Fill them with the spirit of prayer. And may they know in turn the peace and the joy and the fruitfulness that comes from it. And we ask all of these things so that you would be glorified in us. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you didn't see the email this week, uh, the plan is we're going to look at a few psalms. I'm not sure how many yet. We'll just kind of play it by ear. My tradition is between New Testament books, we go to the Old Testament. All, every word of God is true. I want to be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God. I realize I'm not going to be able to preach the whole Bible before I retire. There's just too much here. How people, how men in pulpits run out of materials beyond me. Uh, well, I will never run out of material in two lifetimes. Um, because there's so much truth here. And yes, much of it is repetition. In terms of the substance of the truth, it's given to us by precept, by example, in poetry, in wisdom, and it's, you know, so many of the core truths are just repeated and repeated and repeated in different ways because we need it. We need repetition. We need to be reminded of these things, and certainly that's the case with this morning. The title of the message is Don't Panic, Pray. This is not a topical sermon. This will be an expository message, but this is one that we all need. From time to time, we're all given to panic. So anyway, back to the plan. is a few psalms, and then after that, the book of Colossians. We're going to spend a significant amount of time in Colossians, and then probably a few more uh, psalms, and then after that, around the time that the church plant launches, I'm hesitant to announce this because it makes me nervous. Okay, what do you think, Matt? <laughs> Romans. Uh, uh, so many of you have asked me to do Romans <laughs> for so long, and uh, I tremble at approaching Romans, and praise God I don't have to do that this morning. So, <laughs> turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 3. I know we've done Psalm 1 and 2 and several other Psalms, but I didn't want back then to get into a rut of dealing with the same kind of issues, and so we... We went forward. Now we're going back to pick up some of the psalms that I, I didn't mention before. The ancient patriarch Job declared that man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. If there is one thing that we can count on in this world, it is that we will have problems. And you have problems right now. I'm sure there are problems in your life, but I want to focus not on the first world problems of life, but rather on the, on the really big ones, the serious ones that, that come to us from time to time. The psychological community tells us that anxiety disorders are among, they're the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting 40 million adults on average at any given time, People with anxiety disorders, as they call them, are five times more likely to end up in the hospital than people who don't struggle with that constellation of problems that comes with anxiety. 
Of the 40 million Americans who typically and perhaps daily struggle with anxiety, 60 million, 6 million of them also have panic attacks, which is a, kind of a subset of this problem. And women are said to be twice as likely to fall into that category of having panic attacks. In our world, there seems to be no limit to the things that we can be anxious about. Uh, men and women alike experience anxiety. I experience anxiety. You experience anxiety. And there is a proper anxiety and a biblical anxiety, but for the most part, our anxieties are not good and forbidden. Uh, men and women struggle with financial problems, marriage problems. You have problems on the job. You have problems with your kids. You have physical illness problems, weight problems, car problems, financial problems, car problems, financial problems, and car problems. <laughs> um, there are racial problems, geopolitical problems. A lot of people are, are anxious about the geopolitical scene. Jesus would say to you, don't be anxious. I got this. So there are those kinds of problems. And for many people, these problems are simply too much to bear. Some people are very, very strong, and yet on the inside they battle anxiety. And some people are very, very weak, and they're just crushed by their anxieties. As long as there has been sinful humans on the planet, there has been fear, worry, and anxiety. Moreover, as long as there have been problems in the world, people have devised means of dealing with those problems. As I've already mentioned, some people panic. That is a means of responding to or dealing with your problems. Others check out and refuse even to acknowledge the problem. Still others medicate their problems. In the Bible, however, God offers us divine instruction and concrete examples of how we are to respond to our problems, great and small. It doesn't matter what the problem is. It doesn't matter what the trouble of life may be. God promises that we can avoid the panic, and rather than have panic, we can have life, rest, as we'll see in this passage, sleep. Some of you need to hear this. this. This is not going to be a sleep sermon, how to get a better night's sleep. But part of the application is some of you will sleep better. Life, rest, and peace are promised by God. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 3. And as is our tradition, let's honor the Word of God this morning by standing and reading Psalm 3. Psalm 3. The Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. The timeless truth we discover in this passage is that whenever we find ourselves wrestling with a specific trouble or troubles, we can find rest and peace when we remember that salvation is from the Lord. And perhaps as you listen to this message, there's a certain kind of trouble that you are experiencing right now, and you actually believe this is too much for me. 
No doubt some of you are struggling right now with the worst struggle you've ever experienced. But how should we as Christians respond to such trouble? Now, if you're young and your biggest trouble has been an academic exam, that's okay. Pray about that. But let me just warn you, there's bigger problems coming. Isn't that an encouragement to you? That's all I have to say. Amen. Let's go home. (laughs) How should we as Christians respond to such trouble? This is what we're going to learn about in Psalm 3. And one of the things I love about the Bible is its realism. It's not pie in the sky, you would think. And, And so many Religious books are like this. You read them and it's all about this ethereal kind of stuff. And people think Christianity and the Bible is like that and it's not. It recognizes that people have real, practical, difficult, difficult problems in life. And that's the case here in Psalm 3. The first thing we see is we sometimes encounter serious troubles. We sometimes encounter serious troubles. I say sometimes we encounter serious troubles because so many modern anxieties, we call them, you know, first world problems. That's kind of a new term for them, right? So many modern anxieties stem from issues that are not real troubles, Some people are anxious about crossing bridges. That is not a real trouble. It's not a common occurrence that a bridge will fall. There are times when that has happened, but it's very, very rare. Some people get struck by lightning, but probably you haven't, and it would be wrong for you to be excessively fearful, except for last night when I was fearful, (laughs) uh, both lightning and drowning. Um, right here in the neighborhood. But most of our troubles are like that. They're not serious troubles, but there are some that are real. The heading on this psalm reads, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, we don't have time to delve into why I think the heading is part of the inspired text of Scripture. Um, Suffice it to say, two things. Number one, Every manuscript, every ancient, the oldest manuscripts we have on the Psalms, every one of them includes this heading on this Psalm. And suffice it also to say that almost, well, most scholars and certainly most conservative evangelical scholars who take the text to be the Word of God uh, have good reason to believe that even the heading here is inspired by God, so don't skip that. In order to catch up on the context that this heading offers us, we could flip back to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. In fact, in your small group this week, you might want to go back and, and read some of the story. You may not have time. But 2 Samuel 11 is where we find David committing his sin with Bathsheba. And at this point in the trajectory of David's life, the kingdom takes a bad turn. Uh, Up to that point, it's light and blessing, and God is fulfilling his covenant with David that he would be a king and that uh, he would conquer the nations, and the nations were being conquered. And then David sinned. And it was nothing but trouble almost for the rest of his life. And though it's true that God forgave his sin when he confessed his sin, God doesn't always take away the consequences of sin. It's a different sermon for a different time, but something to think about. One of the consequences of David's, in David's home, was that he began having problems with his children. In fact, when Nathan confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, and David confessed his sin, Nathan told David that from this point onward, the sword would never leave his house. You will be king, and in the mystery of God's providence and salvific plan, there will be a future king in the line of David whose kingdom will be forever and ever. 
one from David's loins. It's, it's amazing that the contrast here between what David is now experiencing and what that promise was. That promise will be fulfilled in Christ. But David, no doubt, was hoping, hoping that it would be Solomon or one of his sons who would be Messiah. And, and Nathan comes along and says, to the contrary, the sword will never leave your home. That prophecy proved absolutely true. In fact, one of David's boys, Amnon, took advantage of his sister, Tamar, in a manner that, I'm being discreet here, in a manner that ruined her life. So Amnon's brother, Absalom, hated him for it. He loved Tamar. And he told Tamar to let him take care of it, which he did. He hatched a plan to kill his stepbrother Amnon, which he did. The consequences of that murder, not to mention a lifetime of poor parenting on David's part, was that Absalom became his father's worst enemy. Moreover, he succeeded in winning the hearts of the people of Israel and successfully stole the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God, really, at that time, for himself. Moreover, he succeeded in winning the hearts of the people of Israel. And listen, as I read a couple of verses from 2 Samuel 15, verse 13, he says, this is David speaking, and a messenger came to David saying, sorry, this is about David, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Absalom is now in Hebron, and everyone was running to Absalom. They called him a man of bloodshed. One of the men who left David to join Absalom was Bathsheba's grandfather. No doubt she never got over what David did. He never got over what David did. And he was eager to join David's enemy. In verse 14, so how did David respond? He said this, Then David said to all of his servants, who were with him in Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else they will, there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down to ruin, bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David has just gotten word that his son has taken the kingdom. And you know what happens to former kings when there's a new king. It's over. It's lights out. Uh, they and their sons will be killed. My friend, this was no first world psychological problem. This was no psychological upset that David was experiencing. He was about to be attacked by a very real and bloodthirsty enemy. And not just one man, but an army of men, and not just an army of men, but a growing army of men. Men by the thousands were joining Dave, uh, uh, Solomon. And, and notice this, that the distance between Hebron, where Absalom had just been crowned king, and Jerusalem is only about 18 miles, which, according to my calculations, if Absalom's men are walking then uh, David's got six to eight hours to get out of town. If they're on horseback, he's in trouble. I mean, it'll take less than half that time. No wonder David uses the word quickly twice in verse 14. This was a real and urgent trouble. If Absalom had his way, there would be blood tonight. Do you think David was a little tempted toward anxiety. And we don't have time to read the passage in 2 Samuel. We know that as he was gathering his people and telling them, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, he's barefoot, he's weeping. Shimei is throwing rocks and dust at him and telling him that this is happening to him because he's a man of bloodshed. Listen again to what he says in Psalm chapter 3, verse 1. Oh Lord, how many are my foes Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. 
It may be helpful here to point out that the word salvation, in its context, doesn't carry really the same meaning that many of us think of, when we, especially in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the term salvation usually refers to the, the promised redemption that results from embracing the gospel. That is salvation. That's what we think about. It's the gospel of what, class? Salvation. Say salvation. <laughs> it's the gospel of salvation. It is the gift of regeneration, the gift of being born again, a, a gift of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. That's what we think of when we think of salvation and all the benefits that come with that salvation. But here, David is using this term in a sense that is broader. Some translators render it help. The Lord, he says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying to my soul, there is no help for him in God. No deliverance for him in God. No victory for him in God. And, and understand, everybody knew the reason that David was king and the people loved him was because obviously the hand of the Lord was upon David. Uh, think of David and Goliath. I mean, that was a miracle. And all of his other victories, everybody knew that God saved him again and again and again, rescued him, rescued his life. When Saul was chasing him again and again, God rescued him. And now they're saying, not this time. David's about to get what he deserves. That's what they're saying. The enemies are gleefully saying, David's done for. His reign is over. Not even God will save him. Not even God will save him from what he's got coming. And it's coming fast and furious, and it will be bloody. This psalm is all about help and deliverance and rescue and assistance from God who loves his people. David writes this psalm to show us by example that help in every, every circumstance, every trouble, help in every trouble is available in God. Or to put it in David's words, salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you find yourself in need of help in some current trouble right now? Perhaps you've received unwelcome diagnosis from your doctor. In fact, I know that's true in some cases here in our church. Maybe it's a child who's launched into some form of severe rebellion. That's what David was facing. You may be struggling with the pain and uncertainty of a bitter, unwanted divorce. It, it may be that you're a, a single girl and you thought for sure that the relationship you had was really going to work out and now it's off. Some might be worried about how you're going to pay your bills this month. All of these and 10,000 other possibilities are very real and serious troubles. That's where this passage begins. By acknowledging that sometimes we experience serious troubles. But how should you respond in such circumstances? Panic? Medication? No, don't... Think of me as anti-medication. I woke up this morning with the worst headache I've had in a long time, and you know what the first thing I did? <laughs> I took medication, and it worked. Praise the Lord, I can preach this morning. Some don't take medication. They just engage in avoidance strategies. They turn on the video game, probably the most dominant one among millennials. Crank up the TV, binge watch, go play golf. David is instructing us, rather, to seek the help of God. The reality is we sometimes encounter serious troubles. Secondly, this passage teaches us that God always sustains us, no matter the trouble. No matter the trouble. There is no trouble that is greater than God. Look at verse 3. 
But you, O Lord, I love this, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. And David's mind immediately turns to the character of God. The character of God, not just what God can do, but who God is. And let me just remember, remind you and say to those of you who are new around here, I believe whenever you come to a text of Scripture in your quiet time or if you see something on a Christian calendar or whatever it is, ask yourself this question. What does this passage teach me, if anything, about God? That's question number one. Not how can this help me, but what does this teach me about God? Listen, you don't need a new strategy. You need God. And so David's mind immediately turns where it ought to turn. He turns to the character of God. Who is God to his people? Who is God? Not, not first of all, what can God do, but who is God to his people? In a prayer of resolute faith, David declares what he believes about God. He says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are a shield. The shield was a well-known part of the soldier's armor in ancient modes of warfare. When swords and spears and arrows were deployed, their shields are even used today. Just turn on the news and watch what's happening over in the east. The shield was usually made of a piece of wood covered with thick hides fastened to the left arm so that it could readily be brought into position to protect the vital organs. But notice the preposition that David uses here for, she, for his, this shield. He doesn't say that God is a shield in front of him or a shield to the side of him or this, a shield behind him. No, he says, you, O oh Lord, are a shield around me. Have you ever driven down the street and found some civil, civil engineers putting in drain pipe, the big concrete tubes? When I think of a shield about me, I think I want to stand one of those. If I'm in battle, I want to get one of those, stand at erect, and crawl into it. It's a shield. Of, I mean, attack me from any side. I'm going to be safe. This is what David is picturing for us a shield that no one had ever seen before. But this is God. This is reminiscent, by the way, of one of my favorite passages. Genesis 15, verse 1. It's where God appears to Abraham. Okay, so this is really interesting, and we don't have time to get into it. But God has entered covenant with David. David's going to be a major player in uh, God's plan of redemption. A major player before him was Abraham. And God entered covenant with him first. And one of the things that was said to Abraham by God were these words. Abraham, fear not. I am your shield, your very great, do you know the next word? Reward. Now, your Bible may not say it exactly like that, but that, I think, is the best translation. Abraham, fear not. I am your shield, your very great reward. God wants Abraham to know that Abraham has no reason to fear, not because God has given, his, given him tools or strategies or therapies to deal with his anxiety, but that God himself is with him. And everything that is true of the character of God is with him. And so he says to Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. You want an inheritance? I'm your inheritance. You want refuge? I am your refuge. You want joy? I am your joy. You want glory? You're going to have glory. I am your glory. God is like a shield that completely surrounds his people. No weapon of any enemy can reach us without first going through God. 
With him as my shield, there's no way the enemy's weapons can truly harm me. It reminds me in Romans where um, Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Right? And the answer is, a lot of people. What do you mean by that? Who will bring a charge? Satan. Yes, but that's not the point. The point is, no charge can stick to us. No charge, whoever makes the charge against us, will be ratified or accepted by a judge, by the judge, because God is with us. God has already made propitiation for our sins. And so while we may be accused, those accusations will do us no harm. And here's what Paul would say, they may kill us, but in killing us, they do us no harm because God is with us. Isn't this a wonderful picture of God's personal protection and care for his people? And the metaphor of God as shield is used frequently in the Old Testament. If you're in the habit of reading your Bible, and you better be, <laughs> or you're drowning, you're, you're, you're losing the battle, guarantee. If you're in the habit of reading your Bible, you've no doubt come across passages such as 2 Samuel 22:31, which reads, the Lord is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Psalm 18:30, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalm 91, 4, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is like a shield. Proverbs 2, 7, he is a shield for those who walk in integrity. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Now, part of the implication there is that if you are not taking refuge in him, you're in a dangerous place. When you have God as your shield, there's no reason to panic. Second, he says of God, you are my glory. You're my glory. The kings were thought to be glorious, honorable, majestic, hence people throughout the ages, ages when they approach a king, they refer to him as your what? You can, you can talk back to me. It's okay. <laughs> even, even you people down the hall, you can, I can't hear you, but you should say majesty. Say majesty. Your majesty. Kings were thought to be majestic. They wore golden crown. They, they had robes and a throne. David is saying, Lord, you are my glory. Even, even though David is Israel's king, he didn't see himself as intrinsically glorious. He admits that this is true. His true glory is God. How did he become king? Because of God. How did he beat Goliath? It was God. How did he beat the Philistines? It was God. How did he survive when, when Saul was after him? How is it that they ended up in the same cave because Saul had to use the restroom? It was God. You go on and on and on. The people loved David because God was with him. David knows it. David doesn't make the mistake of taking the glory to himself. Many of the Psalms were written by David. And by the way, this is really interesting. Uh, where's Kyle? Kyle, this is great. David transformed Israel's worship. And the way he did it was he introduced congregational singing. Not only that, but David himself was a musician. He played the guitar. Well, he played the harp, which is like a 
Well, it's a stringed instrument. <laughs> and he wrote, where's Charlie? He wrote music. Charlie already knows this, and so does Kyle, and so do you. But this is just wonderful to think about. In Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus says, Lord, in the congregation, when they are singing your praises, I'm singing with them. David knows worship. David knows music. David wrote songs to magnify the glory of God as if he were deflecting the glory. All glory be to God. All glory be to God. Lord, you are my shield. You are my glory. If I have any reputation in, in my country at all, it is because of you. You are the glory. I bear your image but the image is not my own. It is yours. The glory is not my own. You are my glory. When David said, the next thing is, David said, uh, you are the lifter of my head. When troubles come, the head is naturally bowed down low as if overpowered by the weight of affliction. You just tell. Um, to lift the head, therefore, is to raise one up, to encourage, to relieve his distress, to take away his troubles. I think of the image of a little boy who joins his pals in a foot race, and everybody's watching. And his daddy says, go on in there and race. And the gun is fired, and they all go tearing down the field to the finish line. And little boy trips and falls in the mud, He's scraped up. He doesn't even finish. Comes back to his dad. His head is bowed low. He's weeping. He's dirty. He's got some abrasions. His lip is quivering. And his dad reaches out his hand, lifts up his chin, and says, son, it's okay. It's okay. I love you, and I am with you, and we're going to have a wonderful day together today. At least this is how I think of lifting the head. The head is bowed low. God, in his tender mercies for his own glory, as a manifestation and application Ministry of grace, he lifts David's head. Such a helper, David says, he is always found in God. No wonder he looks to God for help. God is never one to turn his back on him. And he's never one who doesn't know that David needs help. I wish we had time to look at Psalm 121, but I've already preached on that, I think. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord doesn't sleep when you are struggling. He's awake. He sees. He knows. And he is with you. Listen, there never has been a problem so great that God is not greater still. And he delights to be your shield. He delights to be your glory. He delights to be the lifter of your head. We sometimes encounter serious troubles. But God sustains us no matter the trouble. And then we see that, number three, prayer is faith's way to find peace in our troubles. Prayer is faith's way or faith's means to find peace in our troubles. Look at verses 4 through 6. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. <laughs> I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Um, verse 6 says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves up against me all around. 
A moment ago when I read the list of Old Testament verses about God being our shield, did you notice how many times in these verses taking refuge in God was mentioned? He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Now, this is a conscious act. This is something you do. This is not something that God does for you. This is something that you do. You draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He is with you, even through the valley of the shadow of death, but you must draw near to him. You must seek him as your refuge. You must get under him. Oh, how many times when, when faced with difficult troubles does do God's people simply try to muscle through as though they're sufficient in themselves to endure or to resolve their problems? But isn't this the point of our trials? Isn't that the message that God gives us in our trials? Doesn't God teach us that he allows and ordains troubles in our lives to show us our dependence on him, to encourage our willful dependence upon him. And beloved, this is, for some of you, will be the hardest lesson of your life. Maybe in, in some ways it'll be the hardest lesson any of us learns. To be dependent. I mean, this, this is America. We are independent. I mean, that's, our, that's not our motto, but it's God we trust, but they don't believe that anymore. <laughs> we are dependent. We don't, we don't write a spiritual declaration of independence. We do what is contrary to what the world does. They're not trying to get independent from God. We're trying to get closer to him. We're trying to get under him. We're trying to get more and more dependent upon him because that's the safest and happiest place in all the world. David Brainerd used to say, it's no place I'd rather be than laying with my face in the dust before God. Completely dependent like a child. And, and that's what Jesus meant, that you must become like a child. It doesn't mean obedient. If you think it means obedient, you haven't had children. It means dependent. Dependent like a child, like a baby. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. And prayer is the means by which the heart of faith expresses its dependence and need for God and asks for help for its needs. And so David says, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. His holy hill is in an interesting phrase, because the holy hill is where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where David's throne was. It's where God's throne was. And the interesting thing is, if you read the story back in 2 Samuel, as David is leaving, uh, some of the Levites grab the Ark of the Covenant, and they're bringing it. And David says, no, 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 take it back. Take it back. Keep it in its place. I'm going to be crying toward God's holy hill. Put the Ark there. And so he had it restored, even though Absalom was coming. How did David respond to his serious trouble? He prayed. He asked God, would you come again and be my shield? Would you be my glory once again? Will you be the lifter of my head again? Amazingly, the result of such dependent prayer is often unexpected, unexplained peace in the midst of the storm. And, and I want to say also, just as a side note here, what the text says, I cried aloud to the Lord. This is, this is not some internal um, heart of prayer. David is praying out loud. I find in my life that when I pray, the, the best times of prayer for me are when I'm alone and when I'm praying out loud. It's just something about it maybe that slows down your brain, and puts things in systematic order. This is exactly what David's experience was. He says in verse 5, I lay down and sleep. 
The result of his prayer is that God gave him peace. Now, understand, Ahithophel, who was his um, former advisor, is now with Absalom. And Ahithophel comes up with this great plan. Let's go now. Take the army and chase him down now. The camp is going to be in disarray. We can kill him tonight. And they choose not to do that because David planted another advisor who caused confusion, and they failed to act. But consider this. Uh, the original counsel was good counsel for the enemy because David's army or David's group was in disarray. And you got to know, I mean, they had men, women, children. They had a lot of people with them. They had to defend them somehow. They're, they're, they're running for their lives. They're setting up camp in a desert. I mean, would you have slept that night? You probably would have tried to lay down, but would you have slept? David mentions this because it's the result of his crying out to God in the midst of his trouble. How did God respond? He answered his prayer. How do we know? Because David slept that night. He slept, slept like a baby that night. So remember, in, in the context here, he's barefoot, he's weeping, he's running for his life, he's in charge of all of these people, he doesn't want any of them to die, he doesn't want to die. He's striving to save the lives of his companions. And what does he do? He calls out to God. God, would you be my shield tonight? And the Lord gave him sleep. Beautiful, isn't it? I would dare say that there are probably a number of you today who frequently remain awake at night because of anxiety that grips your soul. And I know some of you joke that anxiety is your spiritual gift. It's not. Can I suggest to you that while getting a sleep number bed may make you more comfortable, what you may really need is to cast your cares upon the Lord. You know why? Because He cares for you. He is the shield all around you. You remember the story of Samuel and uh, pretty sure it was Samuel, when the armies of his enemy came and they surrounded him. And his servant was outside and he comes running in and he says, Samuel, Samuel, look, the, the enemies were surrounded. And Samuel says, Samuel prays, Lord, open his eyes. Lord opens his eyes and there are the chariots of the Lord. And he says, those who are on our side outnumber those who are on theirs. This is God who surrounds us like a shield. And one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples was this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. Jesus came to give you peace. In the midst of your trouble, a hundred years or so ago, Fanny Crosby wrote a poem that turned into a, 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 very, a once extremely popular hymn that every older person in this room who's known the Lord for any amount of time knows this song. I'll just give you one stanza. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry, what's the rest? To God in prayer. Everything to God in prayer. The Jesus who promised to give us this peace was the same Jesus. You remember, while in a small boat on a stormy sea, his disciples, while they were panicking, they found him at the stern of the boat laying on the cushion. And guess what he was doing? Sleeping. That picture that we have of David on the night of their escape. The Lord granted him sleep. And here with Jesus, when everyone else in the boat was overcome with panic, Jesus was sleeping. 
But in their hysteria, not knowing what else to do, they woke him with a prayer of accusation. Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Which, by the way, is not a good prayer to pray at any time. But Jesus awoke. I want you to get this. I want you to see this picture. Jesus woke, awoke. He gets off his cushion. I can imagine him standing up and grabbing hold of the mast of that little boat. And the wind and the waves, like last night, there, if, if you weren't here last night and saw the flooding and everything happening right here last night, maybe you don't get the picture that I get when cars were being pushed and moved around right here on Camp Bowie. And it was way worse uh, for these few men in a boat. And Jesus stands up and he steadies himself and he looks out over the wind and the waves of the storm and he says, Shalom! Peace. Shalom! And the storm stopped. The rain quit immediately. And the author of that text tells us that the water became like glass. This is the God you serve, beloved. When you cry out to him for help, he comes into the midst of your problem, though he may not take it away, but he comes into the midst of your problem and he says, Shalom. Peace. Be still. This, beloved, is the God to whom David entrusted his trouble. Listen carefully, my friends. God may not always protect you from the storm, but he would always protect you in the storm. The Christian life is not like building. Listen carefully. The Christian life is not like building a house in a land of no storms. <laughs> it's like building a house that no storm can destroy. Our all-powerful Savior has promised to pre preserve and sustain us no matter what the storm. And this was David's experience. He cried to the Lord in his trouble. The Lord answered him by granting him peace, the peace of sleep. And then he says in verse 5, I awoke again. I woke up the next morning. I mean, that was a big deal. He, he may have been... Like the guys who attacked Hezekiah, they woke up and they were all dead men. He, he could have been like that. I woke up. And here's the explanation. For the Lord sustained me. The Lord preserved me. He caused me to persevere again. Do you know what that experience did to David's heart? It put steel in his faith. Notice verse 6. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. You know what this is? This is past grace. David remembering past grace to strengthen his faith in God's promises of future grace. I have been faithful to you in the past. Let that be a lesson that I will always be faithful to you. I will not fear, though thousands of people have set themselves against me all around. And by the way, that's exactly, this was no hyperbole on David's part. Men were coming from all over Israel to join Absalom. Have we yet to learn that God welcomes the troubled soul? Every panic-worthy trouble says nothing to the God whose nature is to save. Do you run to Christ in your troubles? Do you find refuge in him like a shield? David responded to his trouble with dependent prayer. He said, O oh Lord, I have many foes who want to kill me, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. For his dependent faith, the Lord gave him the gift of sleep, followed by a renewed hope and courage. 
Sometimes we encounter serious troubles. But God always sustains us no matter what the troubles. Prayer is faith's way to find peace in the midst of troubles. And finally, and very briefly, only the Lord can save his people from their troubles. Verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord. So here we have David talking about his prayer, and now he's praying. This is, this is him praying again. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. By the way, whenever Israel went to war, when it came time for the battle, they would sing and they would shout, Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. This may be in some way a reflection back on Genesis 3 where God says he will crush the serpent's head. Maybe. But I think it is helpful to look at this. Here's David, you remember, when he wanted to enter battle with Goliath and he talked to Saul, the king, and, uh, and Saul basically asked, what makes you think that you, a boy, can take on the Philistines' greatest warrior? And uh, David said, well, there was that one time and I had my sheep, and a bear came and attacked my sheep. And I grabbed that bear, and I killed him. And there was another occasion where a lion came out of the woods and attacked one of my sheep. And I went over and grabbed that lion by the beard of its chin, and I killed it with my bare hands. And Saul said, okay. <laughs> If you can do that, maybe there's hope. I wonder if David was thinking about that. The enemy of God's sheep is coming. God, break its jaw, shatter its teeth. And to your sheep, pour out your blessing. Beloved, this is your God. This isn't some therapeutic strategy for how to help your anxiety. It is God's means of dealing with your anxiety, your panic, your fear. God is at your right hand. He's a shield about you. He's your glory. He's the lifter of your head. Trust him. Trust him. And I would just say here at the end that you may be listening, either in this room or down the hall. You may be online listening. And you don't know this great shepherd of the soul, this great king who can come and rescue you. He offers you salvation as well. Salvation from your guilt and your shame. Salvation from the penalty that you deserve from God because of your rejection of him. Listen, don't give me this nonsense about you have empirical evidence that there is no God. That's not why you reject God. The reason you reject God is because you love your sin and you don't want anyone telling you not to. It's time to surrender that. It's never worked for you in the past. It'll never work for you in the future. And you say, you don't understand how badly I've rejected God. And I would say, you have no understanding of how glorious the grace of God is. If you are a rebellious sinner, if you are a wicked, unrighteous person, you're the only kind of person that the gospel works for. It doesn't work for righteous people. It only works for sinners because Paul tells us who God is. He is the one who justifies the ungodly. If you're ungodly, he can justify you right now if you ask. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this revelation of yourself. 
burn it into our hearts. Help us, Father, to help one another to burn it into our hearts, to help each other pray when we can't pray, to know, Father, that you're so committed to this that even the Holy Spirit prays when, when we don't know how to pray in the midst of our trouble. No, Father, make us a praying people, a dependent, prayerful, rested, courageous, joyful people. To the praise of your glorious grace, we pray. Amen.